Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one feeling that I'm sure pretty much all of us dislike is the feeling that our lives are out of control. I wonder, do you ever have that feeling in life at times? You live every day sort of flying by the seat of your pants, hoping to hold things together. And even worse than that, some of us may feel at times that our lives go from one defeat to another or one hardship uh, to another. It just keeps coming and coming. But if you ever have that feeling, realize that you're not alone in that. Uh, This is something the Apostle Paul also felt at times. You know, if you study his life, study his journeys, you'll see there there was a lot of chaos and there was a lot of difficulty and seemingly lots of defeats. Uh, he describes some of his sufferings and some of this you know, later on in this book, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11. There he says, He faced imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times receiving 40 lashes less one. Uh, once he was stoned, uh, three times he was shipwrecked, he was in danger from robbers, in danger in the wilderness, in hunger and thirst, often without food, etc. Quite the picture. But even though he experienced those things, he did not despair. In fact, Paul could still rejoice despite those things, and he could thank God. This is something he also expresses in our text from 2 Corinthians 2. Paul could thank God because no matter what, no matter what happened to him, no matter what he faced, God was always leading him in triumphant procession in Christ. That is something he could could confess, and that's something we can confess too. And that's what we hope to see from our text this morning. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which is this, give thanks to God who always leads us in triumphant procession in Christ. And we'll look at how we, first of all, are led in triumphant procession by God, and second, how we spread everywhere the fragrance of of Christ. Now, the church at Corinth was established on Paul's second missionary journey. And even though the Lord used Paul to plant this church, uh, Paul experienced a rocky relationship uh, with them. It's clear from his writings that this church experienced many struggles. They struggled with divisions among them. They were plagued by dangerous doctrinal errors. At times, they fell into serious sins and held on to them. They gravitated towards false teachers and so-called super-apostles. Now, the time between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians was an especially challenging time in their relationship to Paul. Paul Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He delivered the letter to Corinth by the hand of Timothy. The news Timothy eventually brought back to Paul was not good. Some in the Corinthian church had not reacted well to his letter. Others had not repented of their sexual immorality. Thus, Paul felt he had to come to the struggling church himself uh, to give them some tough love. In our reading from 2 Corinthians, he calls it his painful visit to them. Now, after returning to Ephesus, Paul had planned to visit them again in the future and told the church as much. 
However, after some time, Paul felt he couldn't bear to go there to make another painful visit to them. It would be too much. So Paul thought it best to write to them instead a letter that is now lost. But he mentions this letter in our reading, and he says, he wrote that letter out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. That was how he felt as he wrote that letter, and this letter splashed with Paul's own tears, was sent to Corinth by the hand of Titus. After sending Titus away, Paul endured much anxiety over this Corinthian church. How would they react to this letter, a stern letter in many ways? Would they truly repent of the sins that plagued them? And also this, would the relationship between this church and Paul be ruined forever? That brings us to the opening words of our text. He writes in verses 12 and 13, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, although these words sound merely like some travel details of Paul, they actually are written to affirm Paul's care for the Corinthian church. And why is that? Well, a wonderful opportunity for effective ministry opened for him in Troas, just what an apostle and a missionary hoped for and prayed for. But despite that open door, Paul had to move on. He had been anxiously waiting for Titus to come back from Corinth. We have to read between the lines. It was not really Titus Paul was worried about. Rather, Paul was anxious to hear about the Corinthian church. And because he didn't find Titus in Troas, Paul felt compelled by his concern for the Corinthians to move on to Macedonia to search for Titus there. And finally, Paul and Titus met up in Macedonia. Titus brought him both good news and bad news. The good news was that Paul's tear-filled letter had brought about the desired repentance. The bad news was that the Corinthians still had some misgivings about the Apostle Paul. They suspected him of being double-minded. He seemed to vacillate when he made his plans to visit them. He had not come to them as he said he would. Could they trust him? The Corinthian church also continued to gravitate towards some false teachers and even super-apostles, as they are called. This is what led Paul to write the letter we call 2 Corinthians. It happened after he met up with uh, Titus in Macedonia. He wanted to show the sincerity of his ministry and to affirm his love for the Corinthian church. And this also gave him further opportunity to teach them the gospel of Christ. And we have some wonderful teaching from Paul about the depths of the gospel of Christ in this letter. Lord willing, we hope to see some of that in the next few weeks. But that's also why we have the words in our text like we do. Listen to me, Corinthians, he's saying. 
I had this golden opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas. But I left it alone because I wanted to hear about you. That's because I care about you deeply. I know I pained you by my letter. But it's because I love you. And doesn't my actions here show the sincerity of my ministry to you? And yes, it's true. Things didn't work out as Paul originally planned. He didn't visit the Corinthian church himself. But you know what? That's the way it often went in his ministry. It's as Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And the Lord often led Paul through difficult things in unexpected ways. Uh, He writes about that in 2 Corinthians 1. In Asia, likely Ephesus, Paul experienced the hardships uh, spoken of uh, there in that first chapter. He says he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. God had led him into this terrible trial where he felt that he was on the brink of death. And again, in our text at Troas, he left behind this golden opportunity because he had so much anxiety about the Corinthian church, he he had to leave it alone. And then later in this letter, he says when he did come into Macedonia, he only experienced more affliction there. It was like jumping from the frying pan into the fire, one hardship after another. And through all this, yeah, Paul probably felt just completely out of control of his journeys and of his life. But notice what Paul says next in our text. He does not despair about all the chaos, the afflictions, and the hardships. Instead, he gives thanks to God. He says, I took leave of them in Troas and went on to Macedonia But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. Now that sounds like a strange reaction from Paul. He recently suffered so much affliction and even defeat. Why does he say God is leading him in triumphant procession? It sounds like God is leading him uh, into one defeat after another. In order to understand this, we need to know about an important event that took place in the ancient world. The event was called the Roman Triumph. This is what Paul is is referencing here in this verse. The Roman Triumph was essentially a victory parade for a Roman general after a war. This event has been called a spectacle of epic proportions. If you want to see pomp and circumstance, uh, this victory parade from a Roman general was it. I need to express my thanks to Dr. William Den Hollander for providing me with many of the details here. He describes the Roman triumph like this. Before the procession entered the city, the city itself was made ready. The temples were thrown open, festooned with garlands and smoking with incense. The people lined the parade route, which wound through or past every building that could serve as a vantage point for the spectators. 
Josephus claims that not a soul could be found indoors when the Flavians celebrated their victory over the Jews. The first of the parade to enter the city through the triumphal gate was the Senate, followed by a group of trumpeteers. Behind these forerunners came the heaps of spoils from the enemy carried along on floats with reenactments of particular battle scenes. On the heels of the floats came the prisoners, specifically chosen for their stature and beauty. A ragged bunch of enemies would hardly reflect well on the triumphing general. Instead, the enemy and rivers of spoil were paraded along to magnify his victory and encourage the crowds to celebrate the might of Rome. And at the end of this parade, this victory parade, the captives in this procession were executed and celebrations commenced. It was a mighty celebration, full of glory. Now, we don't have anything quite equaling uh, the Roman triumph in our day. Perhaps the closest thing to it today are the victory parades made by winning sports teams. Uh, Argentina recently won the World Cup of Soccer, uh, beating France in the finals. And when the team came back to Argentina, huge crowds, massive crowds came out to celebrate the victory. And if their victory parade was more like the Roman triumph, you would have the defeated French team as part of the procession uh, paraded along in humiliation. And at the end of the parade, maybe you would have some kind of dunk tank. Each member of the French team would sit on the dunk tank seat while Lionel Messi shot soccer balls at the target, dunking every player, with uh, the crowds cheering wildly in celebration. Maybe that would be the equivalent to uh, today. But Paul uses the image of the Roman triumph here in our text. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, he says. But the really interesting part of his language is this. Paul identifies himself as one of the defeated soldiers in Christ's triumphant procession. God has planned out this victory parade. Christ is a victorious general, and Paul is a defeated captive. He would be like one of those French players in the Argentinian uh, victory parade. One translation makes this clear when it says, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphant procession. This is how Paul describes his relationship to Christ. And that's because he realizes he was once an enemy of God and an enemy of Jesus Christ. He opposed the church. He tried to fight against Jesus of Nazareth. But the Lord Jesus conquered Paul on the Damascus Road, converting him by his power. And as a believer, Paul now was a captive of Christ the King. And this is also how Paul describes his ministry as an apostle. Yes, Paul was led here, there, and everywhere by Christ. And God brought him through terrible sufferings and afflictions, sometimes beyond his own ability to endure. And through this, Paul's life and journeys as an apostle might seem a haphazard 
and awful to human eyes. But the reality was, despite the apparent chaos, Paul was being led in a well-thought-out victory parade planned by God the Father and worked out by Christ. And so Paul could rest in that. Notice that he gives thanks to God for these things. First of all, it was supremely good that he was a captive of Christ. This wasn't a bad thing. No, this was great. Now, in the Roman triumph, the enemies of the general general were executed at the end of the parade. But being a captive of Christ is different. Being a defeated captive of Christ actually brings life. And even if Paul would lose his earthly life in service to Christ, which he eventually did, he still had eternal life through his conquering king. No, it's the upside-down perspective of the gospel. In defeat to Jesus Christ, the King, there is victory for us as we share in His life and victory. You know, this use of this image also helps us as Christians. We can describe ourselves in the same way that Paul does. We who believe have been conquered by Jesus Christ. And that is a fantastic reason to praise God. If we had not been conquered by Christ, where would we be? We would still be lost. We would still be an enemy of God. We would be in unbelief. We would be in slavery to the devil serving him. But Christ has come to us. He has subdued our stubbornness and unbelief. He has broken our hardness of heart, and he has rescued us from death. And being a captive in Christ's triumphant procession brings us life, eternal life. It's wonderful. We can celebrate that we've been conquered by Christ the King. And furthermore, we too are now in Christ's triumphant procession. Yes, we are in that procession as conquered captives, but that's a good thing. That's because God is now the one who is leading our lives in Christ, no matter what we might face day by day. He's leading our lives for the glory of the conquering King, God's Son. You know, our lives too might seem very chaotic at points. It might seem uncertain, even painful at times. The reality is, God is leading us. He's leading us in a well-thought-out victory parade that is being carried out by Christ, God's Son. And He's doing it for the glory of the conquering general, Jesus Christ. And this is at the heart of Paul's teaching in Romans 8 also. In that chapter, Paul says, We might go through trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, danger, or even be threatened with death. As it is written, we are as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, even in our defeats, in our affliction. 
We have victory in Christ. As God also leads us in this life, He leads us also for the increase of Christ's victory in this world. That brings us to our last point. Now, having described himself as a captive in Christ's triumphant procession, Paul continues on in our text, and he says, he says, So I took leave of them in Troas, went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, in all places. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So Paul could rejoice and thank God. No matter where he was or where he went, God used him to spread the knowledge of Christ. And he describes this action as a spreading a scent, a smell, the fragrance of Christ. And this image may very well be connected to the one we just looked at, the Roman triumph. As a victory parade went through the city, fragrance from the flowers and the incense being burned at the temples would fill the streets. To those on the winning side, it was the smell of sweet victory. To the conquered enemies, it was the bad smell of death and defeat. In any case, this image describes Paul's ministry in the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel indeed receives a twofold response. Some believe and some do not. To those who do not believe the gospel, the message of Christ has the odor of death. To those, though, who do believe, the message of Christ has a sweet fragrance of life. This truth is highlighted in our confessions. Lord's Day 31 describes the keys of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel. To those who believe, the kingdom of heaven is opened wide and they are brought in. But to those who do not believe, it is proclaimed that God's wrath rests on them as long as they do not repent and believe in Christ. The Cans of Dort teaches the same thing in chapter 1. Article 3, in the preaching of the gospel, it says, So that men may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends heralds of this most joyful message to whom he will and when he wills. By their ministry, men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. The very next article notes there is a twofold response. The wrath of God remains on those who do not believe this gospel. But those who receive it and embrace Jesus as Savior with a true and living faith are delivered by Him from the wrath of God and from destruction and are given eternal life. Notice how Paul uses the image of a, of a scent, a smell, or an aroma to describe this twofold response to the gospel. You know, our sense of smell is a powerful sense and it can evoke strong uh, emotion and reaction within us. Just think of different smells you can smell in life. Some of them you love, some of them you absolutely hate. Smell can also trigger memories in your mind. One scent that I love 
is the smell of uh, freshly baked bread. I remember when I was a child coming home from school to find my mom baked a number of loaves of bread. It was wonderful. The smell filled your your senses as you walked in the door, and we had some fresh bread right then and there. So smells can be powerful and produce strong reactions within us. What's also interesting is that some smells are experienced differently by different people. With one fragrance, one person can love it and another hate it. For an example, I think for a moment of entering the building of an indoor pool, what do you smell as soon as you enter that building? A, a strong sense, a smell of chlorine. And some of you might hate that smell. But perhaps the children love it. That's because the smell is associated with such good times. Going down slides, splashing in the water, jumping off the diving board, etc. To use another example, think of a dairy farm. Well, my best friend in grade one, he lived on a dairy farm. I remember going there for the very first time. When I got out of the van, I couldn't believe the bad stench that filled my nose. I said something to the effect of, oh, yuck, how could you ever live here? It stinks so bad. But then I remember him saying to me, I like that smell, and I couldn't believe it. How could he ever like that smell? But for my friend, it was the smell of home. It was a smell associated with swinging on the Tarzan rope in the hayloft. It was a smell connected with times of eating ice cream after moving irrigation pipes in the field. And so he loved it. Paul says, spreading the knowledge of Christ is like that. Some people love it. Some people hate it. To those who are perishing, the message of Christ is the smell of death. But to those who are being saved, the message of Christ is the smell of life. And that truth brings up two questions for each of us sitting here today. The first one is this. What does the message of Christ smell like to you? Does it have the fragrance of life? Or does it have the odor of death? If it has the odor of death, that's a warning to you. It's a warning to repent and believe in Christ before you perish. Ask God to give you a new spiritual sense of smell. And you know what? God can do that. Think again only of our physical sense of smell. Some things we might hate the smell of before, but we might actually learn to like. You know what? Over the years, including the many times I spent in my friend's house, I actually came to appreciate the smell of a dairy farm. Who would have thunk it after my first reaction in grade one? The same thing can happen to anyone who first rejects the gospel. And so we need never despair, but pray that someone's uh, reaction to the gospel might be changed. But if the message of Christ has the fragrance of life to you, then rejoice. The gospel smells like life to those who are being saved. Praise God for that. 
The second question for us this afternoon is this. Are you spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ wherever you go? That's what Paul did. Whether he was in Ephesus or Troas or Macedonia, it didn't matter. The fragrance went with him. It was like a natural scent that he spread everywhere. Does that describe you too? You might think, well, Paul was a missionary. It was his job. But the reality is, God calls us all to it. In fact, Christians can't help but spread the, fra- spread the fragrance of Christ because Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit. You know what? This building is called a scent-free building. But there's one scent that should not be missing here. It's the smell of Christ. There should be a strong fragrance of Christ among us. How do we do that? How we do that, we spread this smell in how we speak and how we act. When you speak and act as sincere Christians, you will spread the knowledge of Christ. People will be able to tell there's something different about you. Just like when they walk into a room and there's a smell, they can, there's something here, something different. And you can spread this fragrance of Christ, especially in telling others about the Savior Jesus. Make it your aim to do this in your life. And so women and girls... Are you wearing the perfume of Jesus as you live your life? And men and boys, are you wearing the cologne of Christ as you go about your life? You know, maybe you don't wear cologne to work. Who wears cologne on the job site? But this is a cologne you have to put on every day, even you concrete guys. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? You know what? We can't do this perfectly. I certainly don't. But by God's power, we can do this more and more. And by God's grace, many more will join in the triumphant procession of Christ. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing hymn 52, stanzas 1, 3, and 4.